This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast for November 2nd, 2009. I'm Andrew Whitaker, Communications Manager for the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. This Colloquium Podcast features game designer and writer Richard Rouse talking about cinematic games. He considers a number of classic movies and suggests ways these techniques can be used in gameplay to create an even more stimulating experience for gamers. Rouse is currently lead single-player designer on the story-driven first-person shooter Homefront at Cow Studios in New York City. He is also author of Game Design, Theory, and Practice. You can find all of our podcasts in the iTunes Store and on our website at cms.mit.edu. Hello, everybody. Um, I have the pleasure to uh, uh, open today today's colloquium, CMS colloquium. Um, I'm Clara Fernandez. I'm a research associate at the Gambit uh, Game Lab. And I have the pleasure to introduce Richard Rouse, who has come all the way from New York uh, to talk about cinematic games. Uh, Richard is a game designer and writer, uh, best known from the Suffering Horror Games and his book, Game Design Theory and Practice. Uh, he's currently the, le the lead single player designer on the story-driven first-person shooter, Homefront at Chaos Studios in New York City. So, without further ado, here's Richard. Thank you. I have a clippy thing. Thanks everybody for coming. Um, I have an introductory slide of my own, but I'll just move on from that, since Clara was so good at doing that introduction. Um, so, cinematic game. What is a cinematic game? This is a, a term that I've heard bandied around the game industry for the last 15 years, maybe, uh, of people saying, hey, we need ga our games to be more cinematic in some way. And I've always found it to be a, a problematic term. What exactly does that mean? And different people mean different things when they say it. So is it, you know, do we want you know, more cutscenes in our games? Is that what it means to be cinematic? Because technically, that's, you know, cinema is a non-interactive thing that plays. More cinematic would be more cutscenes, right? Or maybe they just want the cutscenes that are there to be better. Maybe they want the story better written, better dialogue. Let's, let's Hollywood, hire a Hollywood screenwriter, and he'll make this more cinematic somehow. Uh, let's make it more custom scripted. So even though it's still a game, it plays out the same way every time, sort of. And it's really not a lot of, uh, not a lot of uh, simulation going on and more you know, deterministic. Um, you know, what, maybe we just want Hollywood action moments. Maybe we want Jerry Bruckheimer explosions everywhere. Uh, maybe we want insanely high production values with uh, scintillating explosions and so forth. Or maybe, uh, interestingly, a lot of people when they say more cinematic, they mean, uh, well, actually what I mean when I say it is I want it to be really immersive, like I'm in a Hollywood movie, but I can do whatever I want. And it's just like one of those terms that, that didn't have a lot of meaning to me uh, and was just sort of thrown out as, like, well, we should just make it more cinematic. You know, uh, it was problematic. Uh, you know, here's an interactive movie that you know some people might be familiar with. Here, Dragon's Lair from 1983. It was an extremely cinematic experience, I'd say, but not not much of a game, unfortunately. It was, you know, you had these little choice points, and you could pick between like movie clip where I succeed and movie clip where I die, and then you would play, you would watch some more video, and then you'd get a quick choice. Not not a big success, and that form of game died out pretty quickly. Um, you know, I, I found that, as I was saying, a heavily loaded term, and I often found it charged with what I call Hollywood envy. I think Chris Crawford first said this, that the game industry has had this long tradition of wanting to be more like Hollywood and more glitzy parties with stars at them or just bigger budgets or, or just to become more mainstream, not get reviewed in the tech section of the New York Times, but get reviewed in the art section and, and like have, you know, everyone's talking about games instead of talking about movies around the water, around the water cooler. Um, 
But again, ending up in that tricky place where you're ending up with, with interactive movies which don't really react, or uninteractive games, which is not really what games are supposed to be. Uh, this is a great quote from Jordan Mechner. Uh, you know, that one day soon, calling a game cinematic will be a backhanded comment like calling a movie stagey. You know, whenever you have a movie that's adapted from a play or something and they never, they didn't really transcend the original genre, it feels like they're always trapped in one room the whole time because that's how the play was. They haven't really adapted it to take, take advantage of the film medium. The same thing can be true of a cinematic game that hasn't really embraced the interactive form. So with these talks, um, you know, I wanted to figure out, well, what's a better use of this term? Because uh, I'm a fan of movies. I'd, I'd love to learn from them, but I don't want to turn our games into movies necessarily. Um, so it was to draw, you know, from sort of the, obviously there's 100 years of, of tradition to filmmaking and different techniques they've come out with and try to deconstruct those techniques and figure out how we can use them in gameplay or how other games have already successfully used them and how can we leverage those in our new games. Uh, and so it's something that's not just copying from, from movies slavishly, but adapting it to work in our medium. So this led to three, three talks I did at the Game Developers Conference. Uh, of the original one was sort of a catch-all. The second one was based on storytelling uh, techniques specifically, and the third one was based on, on action, action movies and action scene techniques. Because uh, though you know, games are really good at action already, you know, a lot of they, they aren't as good as contextualizing the action and making the action meaningful. Um, so still, still things to be learned from movies there. Uh, so that led to this series of talks, and this is sort of a collection of different, of different examples from these different talks uh, that I thought were sort of the best ones. So with that, I'll take it away to our, our first example. This is a fairly simple one, but important. Um, and we're going to look at a clip from Goodfellas in a second here, but this idea that even when you're following a character in a scene, you want to follow the rules of, of uh, photography um, and, and you know, put the character on one of the third lines. It's sort of this standard rule in, in film and photography that you want the character to be on like one of the line breaks where the scene is cut into either uh, vertical thirds or horizontal thirds. Um, and also try to have a camera that feels real and authentic and not like even though um, you know, there are things like the Steadicam that Kubrick used a lot, it still feels kind of robotic to people. People, especially as you see Today, people prefer a, a, a camera that feels like there's someone behind it, that feels like a real thing. So when we look at this clip from Goodfellas, we're going to see some of that in this. So notice this is a lot like a third-person sort of follow camera. Um, and watch how they don't stay at the center of the screen for very long at any time. It puts them onto the left third there until the camera whips around. Now they're on the right third again. This has the advantage too that whatever's in the center of the screen we can see clearly. We're not just looking at the back of their heads the whole time. And the camera has enough bounce to it that it feels like we're just, you know, we're just sort of following these people through the restaurant. You know, we're not some weird robot following them on an exact spline. You know, you look at Pixar movies, they could do whatever they want with their camera, but they still go out of their way to create a camera that feels like this sort of thing, where it's a real, it's a real thing with physical properties in the environment. So a lot of, uh, a lot of games have, you know, from, from when we first started doing sort of third-person follow cameras, have forgotten these rules or maybe didn't know them in the first. They often, like, put the character dead in the middle of the screen, you know, couldn't move from there, 
And often, a lot of games had that sort of, you know, stick out of the butt camera, we call it, where like there's a stick and the camera's on it and it's just sort of locked there and it like moves really jerkily and there's no, there's no play to it. It doesn't feel like a real camera at all. Um, you know, and, and often because of the, the choice of putting the camera in the middle of the screen, the avatar might have to fade out when you backed into a wall or something, and that creates this situation where the audience is not used to people f fading out in the real world or fading out in, in films. And so it's like, what happened to my, this is just, it automatically reminds you, oh, right, I'm playing a video game. I'm not immersed in this anymore. Um, so a good example of this comes from uh, Max Payne 2's camera, actually. Still has the, the character fairly close to the center of the screen, but he's actually off to the left a little bit. This is a shooter, so it's important I have that sort of tight control of where I'm aiming and I'm able to move the camera really quickly. So it still has a little bit camera, you know, stick out of the butt camera problem. But watch this when I back into this wall. It creates this perfect sort of over the shoulder shot, right? So I can still see where I'm aiming and it creates this, sorry, this framing that is, uh, that is, uh, you know, something I've seen in movies before, something I'm, I'm accustomed to seeing from the language of film, from all the movies I've watched. No matter where I pitch, tries to keep him on the side so I can sort of see, uh, see what I need to see, and it's also creating a good shot composition. Um, another game that I don't actually have a clip from, Shadow of the Colossus here, um, you know, their camera's really interesting because you're even more off on this third of the screen the whole time. It's like, and every time you turn, it'll like swing over to the other side. Um, but it, it never, never leaves the character in the middle of the screen. And since this is a game, it's not a shooter, it's less important the camera be super responsive like that. They're able to make it smo move sort of smoothly and nice and have real weight to it as it moves around the environment. Um, so a really good use of, use of those principles that more games are picking up on this, I think, now than, than you know, 10 years ago, but still something we're learning from. So uh, parallel editing is the second technique I want to talk about. I'm sure you're all familiar with this uh, from movies. It's you know, having two scenes that are sort of running at the same time that usually come together at some point and helps to build suspense, remind you that someone's chasing you or, or something is, uh, you know, there's some impending threat showing up. This is an example from uh, Silence of the Lambs. So we have the, the psycho killer in the, in the basement here and the FBI coming up around his house. This sort of adds extra urgency to both sequences. If we watched them separately, it would feel a lot different. Now watch this as the guy comes up to the doorbell here. This is a common uh, parallel editing technique. He's going to press the doorbell in one scene. Then we see it ringing in the other scene. It creates that connection. We see the, the two scenes are coming closer together now.
Wait a second. But about here, we're starting to realize, oh, wait, we thought they were in the same place, but they're actually not. So around this time, we realized what the FBI just realized, that they're at the wrong house. Uh, and, and Jonathan Debbie was able to do this in this movie because of the convention of parallel editing that had been set up for you know, the last 100 years, um, where you know, people are expecting, oh, they're coming together. I see what's going to happen. There's going to be a shootout or something. And oh, wait, he's completely subverted the, the conventions by using that technique in that way. Um, this is a much less used technique in games. Um, because it's harder to pull off, you know. You don't want. It's hard to like cut away from the player controlling the character to, you know, some other sequence where they're not controlling it, and then cut back and forth really quickly. It can be pretty disorienting. Um, and this is different than you know. A lot of games have the things where you cut away to some scene where you see a door open or you see like uh, you know the the, the supervillain uh, ranting to himself about how he's going to kill the player or something, and then you cut. This is different. It's like a series of of quick, short and quick cuts. Um, and again, as I said, it's hard to do this not to frustrate the player, but one game that did it was uh, Karataka, which is actually a pretty old game from 1984, I believe. Um, and this, I didn't, was, wasn't able to capture footage of this, so I have a series of screenshots. Um, so this is on the good old Apple II here. And you know, I'm running, I've you know, been beating up guys in this sort of kung fu palace thing somewhere. It's not really explained uh, what it is. It doesn't really matter. Uh, and I, I'm running through down this hallway, and as I'm running down this direction, suddenly it cuts to this shot of this guy running towards me. And if I just, and then a second later, it cuts back to me, and I'm like, oh wait, what happened? If I stop, it stops cutting. If I stop moving forward, but you know, I have to move forward at some point, then it cuts back to him again, and I, I have that connection again in the same way that the doorbell was a bit of a connection. The other sequence here, it's that mountain in the background that you see the wall is the same on both sides, but it has that unifying element of the mountain to connect up the two shots until finally, as you're going, you come together and you fight just like every other fight you had, but it had a little tension of you. I'm running along this hall and I'm getting this building tension as I go. This is a good, good example of using parallel editing. I don't actually know of any others. Uh, maybe people can suggest some in the Q&A section if you can think of one. Uh, but uh, it's a cool technique. I think games could, could figure out cleverer ways to do this uh, than, than has been done so far. So another technique related to, uh, to, to sort of parallel editing is the idea of image juxtaposition. Uh, I don't know if people know about this uh, Kuleshov experiment. It was done by this uh, Russian filmmaker, Lev Kuleshov, in the 1910s sometime. Um, and I'm just going to show you a clip of it here. And what he did was he put different images next to each other and then saw what the effect was on the audience. This is a silent clip, obviously. So it starts out with a bowl of food. And it goes to this man's face. At this point, the audience is thinking, well, what, what is that guy thinking? Then it cuts to a, uh, a, a funeral casket, sort of a Russian-looking funeral casket, then back to the man's face again. So did anyone notice a difference in his expression between those two shots there? Of course, you're all smart and hip uh, 21st century students, so you know that the face was actually the same in both things, and that by putting it by the different elements, it changes people's impressions. So when people saw that originally back in 1910, whatever, um, they were thinking, oh, he looks hungry in this one shot. No, this other one, he looks sad, when really his, his expression is exactly the same in both sequences. Um, and this is sort of led to the montage, and you know, Eisenstein was big into the montage. 
Um, but that's something that, that filmmakers have been using ever since to sort of put images next to each other to change the meaning of those, of those images. Um, and to sort of play up a sort of psychological effect they're attempting to have on the audience. So, for example, this is a, a sequence from The Godfather. And this is kind of like parallel editing, but a little bit different in that the sequences aren't necessarily going on at the same time, and they never really come together. So Michael Corleone is having his, his uh, child baptized here. By putting these sequences next to each other, it changes the context of each one. The important thing to take away here is that if you saw just the baptism by itself, you'd think, oh, well, he's a bad guy in the rest of his life, but he does care for his son or daughter. I'm not sure which sex that child is. Uh, but then the, uh, or if you just saw the executions, would be like, oh, yeah, he's a bad guy. He's killing all these people. But they were his enemies. But putting the two next to each other, you're sort of highlighting the hypocrisy of the situation that, you know, he's both at the same time, you know, pretending to be a man of God, but really he's having all these murders carried out. It changes the tone and tells us something about his character. So again, this sort of image juxtaposition is kind of tricky to pull off in games because of that, that problem of cutting away all the time and how do you juxtapose these things. Um, but we actually came up with a technique in this game I worked on, the Suffering, the sequel, Ties That Bind. Um, and we actually had it in the first game as well, but this, it worked out a little better in this sequence. Sort of juxtapose an image without breaking away from play to just change the effect. So it's a horror game, so I'm sort of navigating the environment my standard way and constantly looking for threats that might be coming up on me. And I look into that hole, that looks kind of ominous. And then we just quickly overlay that image on top there. It's kind of hard to see on this screen what it is, but it's kind of this creature looking thing. You're not really sure what it is. These are things that would just randomly be peppered up based on sort of the intensity level of the game, or if we were trying to make going into that room a little more disturbing, just laying that up, playing into the players. There was this fictional component that the player was insane, and so we could layer these things up and have that explanation for it. But by putting that image up, it changes the context of, oh, I'm going to that hole, but now I'm a little more tense about it. There was another example of it was here. So in the game, there are these friendly characters you have a choice to save or kill. And there I just chose to kill that guy, because he was whining and annoying me or something. And uh, I just flashed up that image. So if it was just a, another kill, like many other kills in the game where I shot him and he died, it wouldn't have had the same context. But by putting up that screen effect quickly, that bloody doll that appeared there for a second, sort of adds that, oh, wait, this kill was more meaningful. Maybe I feel cool that I killed him, and I got this ominous voice telling me I was a tough guy. Uh, or maybe I realized, oh, wait, maybe I, shouldn't, I didn't mean to do that. Maybe I feel bad about it and want to go back to my last save or something. So it 
adds extra weight to that sequence, sort of just juxtapose that horrific image after you've done this horrific act. So this next technique I want to talk about uh, is called picture within picture, and this is a way to sort of have a scene going on at once, using that thing again from the parallel editing a little bit, but now sort of telling two scenes at once without having to cut back and forth. Um, so this is a, a shot from uh, Citizen Kane, from the beginning of the movie. And if you've seen this, which I assume everyone has, you know that sled has special significance. And we see him having a good time in the snow here. Watch as we pan backwards here. Dolly backwards, I guess. We see that we're still able to see young Kane there playing in the snow. And while they're sort of arguing about money and what to do with the boy and sending him basically off to a life of uh, private school and, and sort of a non-loving home environment, while they're arguing in the foreground, we're still seeing him have a lot of fun in the snow in the background. Juxtaposing that, you know, what they're thinking they're doing is best for him with him really having a good time. We don't see him having a lot of fun, not nearly as much fun after this. And by setting up the scenes to play back at once, he is getting that resonance. Even if it doesn't come across, it sort of affects the tonality of the scene. So obviously this is something you can do in games a lot easier than the parallel editing or, or the image juxtaposition, where you can have, you know, say in a first person shooter or something, you're having a sequence play out behind a fence in the background while in the foreground the player is playing to do a puzzle or trying to you know, uh, shoot some enemies or something like that. Yeah, you can really place things carefully in the environment to sort of tell a little story in the background while the player is having some activity in the foreground. So it's not about telling two stories necessarily, but playing a story in a way that's non-intrusive to the game. Um, and it's, it all depends on what your camera angle, angle is and what you can pull off. So this is an example from another world. It was called in Europe or out of this world. In this country, it was a side scroller. You see, I basically have a side view of the world. And I'm going to see, uh, I'm, I, that guy's going to come get me. So my buddy here opens up this hatch and shuts it. Now look at the top of the screen. Even though my character can't see that, I still see those guys having a conversation up there. I don't really know what's happening. So it tells that little story of like, I wonder what happened to that. So here's another clip from later in the game that might or might not play. Let me try this again. There we go. So watch here. I'm going to take out an enemy. And then in the extreme foreground, I see my buddy run by again. So I'm like, oh, wait, he's actually in trouble with them. And I realize, oh, I see. This is, uh, you know, I'm getting this little bit of the story. It doesn't have to cut away to it. He's just in the same environment. And because of where the camera is, they're able to place those things carefully. Um, and here's another example later on where it makes no sense that my character would see this, right? But because it's a side camera, I don't question it. As a, as a player, I'm just like, oh, I see my buddy's trap below me, and maybe I could go 
save him somehow. And it turns out you can sort of move that thing that's blocking his way and do this puzzle. And you're able to go on. And, and then he joins up with you and you fight together. And it's, it's great. Um, but you know, it's because of this camera angle, they're able to do that same sort of picture-in-picture -picture effect, where you're getting an extra story without having to cut away to a cutscene. So uh, here's an uh, example from um, sort of a different idea of like how to set up a shootout and how that can differ in a, uh, in a, in a, in a movie from a game. So this is actually going to be two clips that both use slow motion, but in very different ways sort of play up the character elements of each sequence. Um, and sort of change up, you know, whether it's chaotic or precise, and like uh, setting a certain pace, which also tells us something about the characters. So this first clip is from the Wild Bunch. And notice the. The slow motion here is really just to emphasize the brutality of, of that guy getting shot. It has nothing to do with these guys or how they conduct themselves. It's just sort of a, a flourish. And here they're thinking, wait, we just got away with this. We just killed the leader, and they're going to not shoot us. It's amazing. We can leave now. <laughs> but maybe not. Notice as we're seeing this, the way it's shot, there's no precision to it. It's just, I, you can't even really tell where these guys are in relation to the enemy. There's no master shot above showing where everyone is so you can understand it. Because these guys are scrappers. They're like wild guys who get into gunfights, and they don't even know what they're doing. They just shoot guys and hope for the best. And again, the slow motion is just tied to you know, the brutality of the scene. It has nothing to do with them taking a shot or being careful or precise uh, at all. So we can contrast that with this shot uh, from The Untouchables. Where we see the Elliot Ness character here spots the bad guy in slow motion. Here's the. Uh, Gratuitous De Palma Eisenstein reference. And again, everything is careful and precise here. He's picking targets, he knows where they are. It's all in slow motion so he can make his, his shots carefully. He's being careful not to hit any civilians. And if we let this play out all the way to the end, uh, we'll see that he's you know, precise enough to go save the baby carriage before the kid gets to the bottom, but it just takes forever. <laughs> this is like simulating his, his own, you know, internally ability to, to handle this combat situation in a precise way by slowing everything down. Sailor got, got killed, but if we get the baby, it'll be okay. 
we go. Phew. <laughs> Thank God that kid's alive. Everybody else is dead, but you know, whatever. Uh, so I'm going to contrast this with an example from a game, which is sort of an interesting case. Um, this was Stranglehold, which was a, uh, a sort of a, a, a game sequel to a movie that had come out a while ago, uh, Hard Boiled, the John Woo movie. And they were trying to recreate the sort of cinematic flair of John Woo in a, in a, in a game situation. Uh, and a lot of the techniques he uses to build up tension don't really have a lot to do with gameplay necessarily. So they were challenged with trying to figure out ways to adapt them uh, to make them interactive in some way. Um, so this example is, is of a Mexican standoff where everyone pulls their guns on each other. Uh, you might recognize it from this sort of thing that happens in all his movies, uh, where there's a standoff and, oh, what are we going to do? How do we, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of ridiculous, but in this lovely John Woo way. Um, so how can we take this situation where the gameplay is like, I don't know what, and make it, make it into a game situation? So here's, a, here's an example of what the team did for that. So this is your standard follow camera, which goes into a quick little cutscene that sets it up. And notice it's going to segue directly into this. Suddenly, I'm in a game situation where now I'm able to lean back and forth to sort of dodge their bullets in this slow motion mode. And I have to quickly aim my reticle over to them to get some shots in before they overwhelm me. And if I stay in this mode too long, I'll take too many shots and die. But once I've killed a couple guys, I break out back into regular gameplay. So here they, they don't really have a good fictional justification for why I can't move during that Mexican standoff situation. It's just because it makes a cool little set piece. Um, and you know, it's a good mapping of, um, of, you know, the play, of some of the player's abilities from before that he can lean back and forth and aim and shoot, um, but, it, you know, doesn't but doesn't let him move around at the same time, thus recreating something that feels sort of like a Mexican standoff. I think you know, fairly accessible given a, a pretty challenging thing to implement. Um, so this is a, another technique tied to that is sort of the, the suspense change-up. Um, this is where, you know, in a scene, in a movie, often you're like, you've got a character who you know is a hero character, like a Clint Eastwood or something, as it's going to be in this clip from Unforgiven. You know he's, he's going to prevail in the end, and it's like, how many new challenges can you throw at him while he's, while he's you know, trying to gun down the bad guys? Things that he's not expecting, and sort of throws off the player's, the audience's expectation, and also the character's expectation. He has to improvise something um, and to, to, to uh, prevail. So this is a clip from uh, Unforgiven. So now we all know how this scene is going to end. Clint hadn't yet entered his Grand Torino period of revisionism, so uh, there's no way Gene Hackman's getting away. And what's funny is that this creates a ch What does he do? Oh, he just throws a gun at him. And then ducks and starts shooting everyone. It's fine. But it's that extra complication that's thrown in the, well, you've got a gun. Oh, but it didn't work. 
How are you going to get out of this situation and still prevail? Just makes the scene more interesting. So this is something that adapts uh, particularly well to a sort of game space, um, where you can throw that new complication at the player, try to make it not completely arbitrary, like, well, your gun's never jammed before, but now in this scene it does, ha ha. Uh, try to do a little better than that, um, you know, as we'll see in this example from Call of Duty 4, where they carefully justify why the player's abilities are removed, and the player must, you know, master the surprise situation uh, on the fly. So this is from the end of Call of Duty 4, spoiler alert. So this is your standard combat right here. I'm shooting a lot of guys. I move around and I shoot. I take cover when they're shooting at me until that helicopter up there shot some missiles at the bridge and incapacitates me. Now I'm put into this sort of extreme slow motion situation that lets me know that things aren't normal. You notice my gun is gone and I'm not able to move around. I can move the camera around so I'm not completely pulled out of the game. But I don't have full free motion either. I'm sort of limited. Since this guy's dragging me and my legs are broken or blown off or something, uh, you know, I'm, I, I can't look away from him completely or get up and help him or anything, but I can watch this play out. See him go down. He kind of drops me here. And I slump over. Things are looking pretty grim. I look over. There's Captain Price, who's been with me the whole game. He's looking pretty bad, too. And when I look back, I see my, my arch nemesis, the evil Russian dude here, is coming down the bridge. I shot his arm off earlier. He's got one arm left now. But he's sort of reinforcing his villainy here, capping guys in the head, when suddenly his helicopter blows up. What's he going to do? So now I, I slump over again. I see Captain Price. Slides me the gun. And now I have a quick, really brief amount of time to take the shot on this guy and also take out his henchmen. Most people forget the henchmen. <laughs> and I don't have the ability to move at all. All I can do is go into my aim mode and shoot as quickly as I can. So it's building on the mechanics that are in the rest of the game, but taking away a part of them but carefully justifying why it's taken apart because this explosion happened and you lost your gun and you're knocked on the ground and it's all in slow motion so you know normal rules don't apply now, but it still feels part of the game and you get this really ability to take this guy down at close range instead of like killing him with you know mortars from miles away or something like that. You get that, that feeling of this sort of intimate death, uh, but all from within the game, so you still feel immersed the whole time. So next, let's talk about some, uh, some car chase camera techniques. Um, this is how you know, different, uh, different sort of car chases over the ages has, have evolved where they put the camera during a car chase. So we're going to look at two different clips here, one from The Hidden, uh, which I believe is from the 80s, and The Born Supremacy is more recent, obviously, um, and see just how they shot these scenes differently. So on this, we get a lot of far back shots of the cars, where we can see we can see the relationship between him and the thing chasing him, and see the cool car moves he's doing. And there's a few shots of the interior, but even those tend to be from outside, outside the door, looking at him. We see them streaking around the corner. This is your classic bullet-style car chase. 
So the player isn't that immersed. They're more watching this as a spectator, and they don't really have a sense of who's doing the chasing or who the character is who's driving or, or anything. It's all pretty removed, um, which contrasts sharply with uh, the born supremacy here, which feels a lot different. So now the cameras are much tighter in. We don't get a sense of where the things are in relationship to each other. And the shots are actually as if we're a passenger in the side seat. And we see Jason Bourne doing more stuff and grunting and cops getting their head whipped back. Overall, a lot more frenetic. And you get the sense this is about Jason Bourne and his ability to drive a car in a badass way. And I really have no sense of like who's where, what's shooting, or like there's no master shot that shows you where everybody is in the scene. It's all just about that frenetic energy and these cool sort of close-up impacts. So the, the trick with the game, obviously, is that we're serving a couple of masters here. So we have the need, you know, a lot of certainly action driving games need to have that third person camera that's really back far from the car so that you have that sense of spatial awareness of where you need to be in the environment uh, and where the enemies are and so you can dodge them or whatever. Um, but it's also problematic in games to try to shoot from that perspective. Say you want to shoot from the car um, because, you know, aiming from that sort of far back angle is really problematic, like the shooting from the car in GTA. Uh, is really not that great, for example. Um, so this was an interesting technique the team on Wheelman came up with to sort of merge the two, the two together in an interesting way to get something that works both for the shooting and also emphasizes the main characters. In this Wheelman game, you're playing uh, Vin Diesel uh, character, and you want to be reminded that he's all cool and you're cool by extension. Uh, so here's a, a clip from the Wheelman. You'll see this is a, a sort of standard third-person chase cam here. You're able to smash into these guys. You can do a little shooting from the car, but it's all automatic. If you want to do real shooting, you hit this button and switch into this view, where the camera zooms inside and goes right in over his shoulder. And you're able to take off a few careful shots and blow up a couple of cars and escape that way. And while you're in that, while you're in that shooting sequence there, you know, the car's on autopilot. You don't have to be worried about driving. Your controls have shifted over to just worrying about shooting. You see Vin Diesel's there. He's still cool. You're glad you're playing him in the game, presumably. Um, and, and you're getting the, sort of the best of both worlds, where it lets you do some cool shooting quickly and then pulls you back out while reminding you what a cool, what a cool character it is. So uh, this is an interesting technique that a lot of games have, have leveraged fairly successfully of uh, sort of throwing a character who might have been a strong character up to now into a confusing environment of some kind. Um, you know, it makes the, makes the viewer feel vulnerable as well as the character because they don't really know what to expect out of this environment and, get, and can lead to some sort of cool effects depending on, on just how strange this environment is as it is in this clip from uh, the lady from Shanghai. So this is near the end of the movie. He's going to meet the femme fatale in a fun house. So he's disoriented until finally he finds Rita Hayworth.
we get to start doing some pretty cool stuff with the camera here because it's a house of mirrors. Now with an extra character added, we don't know where exactly he is, we get to really start playing with things. We start getting really surreal with just juxtaposing her face on top of everything. This leads to the perfect place for a gunfight. For Max Payne 2, I'm pretty sure that they saw that scene and said, hey, let's put that into the game. Obviously, they didn't have the technology to do that crazy mirror stuff, so they did everything else they could with a funhouse. Again, using that same techniques, except now applied to a player who's going to be thrown off by the same experience. You know, and the, the player feels, in this, in this situation, you know, you're, you're walking into another situation where it's going to be an ambush. You don't know what to expect. And uh, there's some cool self-referential stuff towards the end I'll point out. This place was a closed-down funhouse based on a 90s TV show. The show's cancellation has been the kiss of death for us. So again, I'm going to meet some, some nefarious people here, and I'm expecting gunfire. It is a shooter, after all. So I keep waiting for the enemies to show up. I don't know, is that a guy? Wait, who's up in that window? No, nobody there, okay. Again, I keep guessing, is that something that's gonna hurt me or is it just part of this big show? There's been no locks in the front door. I 
For most of the sequence, they keep it all in game. They do that little camera cutaway there, I'm not sure why, to emphasize that guy. Because it's all in game and not just a, a cutscene of a, of a fun house, I'm actually constantly on edge as I move through it. Here I think, uh-oh. They are actually are to get me with the funhouse, but oh no, it's just part of the show still. But now things start getting pretty weird here. Still waiting for those enemies to show up. Here's the room with the rotating disc, just like Lady from Shanghai. Easy to get turned around. Keep waiting for somebody to shoot me. Listen carefully to the VO here. At this point, they're basically saying, yeah, we know our whole shooter is basically a fun house, but that's OK. Are you having a good time? And finally, I make my way out of the funhouse, and no one has attacked me the entire time. I've been on edge the whole time, waiting for it. It's probably the biggest break of gun without gunfire in the entire game. But it's this great sort of sub subversion of, again, your expectation uh, versus what they're delivering here. So this next technique is uh, altered reality. Um, this is something movies do in a bunch of different ways. Uh, the first one we're going to see is a dream sequence here. Um, where we're wondering, is this dream sequence real, or is it a memory, or is it part memory, part real? Um, and sort of this interesting way these visual elements from the real world intrude on the dream world, and we're, we're led to question what we're seeing. This is from the, the Manchurian Candidate, the original version. We do the classic Hollywood blur on him sleeping, which lets us know he's sleeping. So here we don't really know what to think. He's here with his, his unit. We've seen these guys before from the Korean War. They seem to be, you know, are they here after the war sometime? Is this a memory or is this real in some way? She looks a little weird with that cigarette thing, but it all feels fairly like, okay, they're in a flower club listening to a presentation. How strange that they're there at all. Notice that the camera's been continuous this whole time. We say, hey, wait, what's that guy doing? Where'd he come from? Whoa, what's going on? 
Now we start figuring out what's going on here. Now notice here, it's his words, but through her character now. She's no longer talking about flowers. Back to this version of reality again. Cuts right back to her again. And now he's in the flower club. So sort of bleeding all the elements together in this cool way. So that, that's one take in the, in the form of a dream sequence, where it's sort of remixing all the elements of reality so you don't know what to think. Here's another example where it's not a dream from uh, The Life and Death of Peter Sellers, uh, which sort of merges them together in a different way. And this has an interesting trigger device I'll point out when we get to it. Now watch this as he looks through the window. Do this weird zoom here. It lets us know, huh, this scene's going to be a little weird, maybe. What's going on exactly? We still have cars in the background there. But now all the cars in the background have turned into women. And notice the audio stays in that sort of double entendre space the whole time. Sort of an interesting way to sort of mix his perception of reality with what the audience gets to see in the sequence. Um, so this is sort of an underused technique in games. We really get to play with the, the player's perception of reality. Uh, and I think it can often tie really well into, into storylines a different way, either dream sequences or slightly crazy characters or characters who are drugged or that sort of thing, where you can really manipulate reality in interesting ways where you, know, you look one way and see something, you turn away and look back and, oh, there's something there. You know, to pull off that Manchurian candidate technique, they all just scrambled and move everything out of the way while the camera was dolling around. In games, we can really do whatever we want, which is, makes it unfortunate that we haven't manipulated reality like this more. Um, so this is a good example from The Last Express of it working well, though. This is set on board a, uh, you know, the Orient Express uh, right before the start of World War I. You see, I can sort of, it's a point and click adventure, so I can point my way down the halls. I see there's a conductor sleeping in the chair down there. And I can pass through. There's another conductor in this car, and I'm going to my bedroom here. I go in, and I decide to. Uh, sleep in the bed. Notice that shot when I went to bed there. I get the you're dreaming sound. The dreaming sound stops. I'm awake now. I start on that same shot I went to sleep with. I 
Things seem a little different for some reason, though. I go out into the hall. Oh, the conductor's not there. That's interesting. He plays that ominous music again. I'm going to go down to his chair and see if he's got some papers or documents I can find. It's an adventure game. But as I try to go down there, I can't actually make it all the way to his chair for some reason. I can turn around, try to go down the other way down the hall, but it won't let me go that way either. How strange. The ominous music continues to let me know, hmm, maybe something else is going on here. The whole time, I'm still next to my bedroom, so I go back in. Suddenly, I see my dead friend from earlier in the game. And then that's you waking up out of your dream. Now when you're back awake, you'll notice the ambient sound is back. They cut off the ambient sound completely, so it sounded completely dead, which should have been the tip-off that maybe something was a little weird about it. I go back into the hall. There's the conductor again. This great way of simulating that real dream experience of trying to get somewhere, and you just can't get there no matter what you do. Um, a great sort of mapping of, of real life onto these game mechanics. So this is another example of, of altered reality. And this is an actual case where we use this, this footage as inspiration for the game. The other ones are sort of uh, parallels I'm drawing, whereas this is an actual development experience. Um, this is a, a clip from The Shining that shows sort of an altered reality, basically this haunted uh, Overlook Hotel. Um, and there's no trigger shot here. And there's no, no use of, of angles to, uh, to hide what's. It's just as you round the corner, you see it using a, a point of view camera. Um, very much like a game, uh, and then some quick jump cuts to simulate stuff. So I'll just show the clip here. Notice it doesn't actually cut away from them as he's seeing the flashes. It just sort of cuts in on them while juxtaposing the, the gory axe scene. Sort of in the same way you might see something in real life, and then you see a flash or a memory of something. It's almost superimposed on top of it. But you're still always looking at the same scene. You don't have to hide it with cutting away and cutting back. Now look carefully at the end of where this, this sequence ends here. This is basically a third-person follow camera uh, from a game, which makes it very applicable for our uses uh, in the suffering. Um, this is where we realized we needed some more horror elements in our game. And we went back to our original inspiration of, oh, we want something like The Shining. How can we get that to work in a game sort of environment? Um, and we had to do a lot of adaptation to the techniques shown here in order to get them to work in a game. So. Um, you know, we're, we used some slow motion and some flashes to hide the things because we didn't want to jump away. We didn't want to make it a, a cutscene necessarily. Uh, but let's just watch this clip from The Suffering. It is dark in here. That's a door I can't open there. 
So basically, we re-ripped as much off from that shiny sequence as we possibly could. Um, but it feels different. I don't think people would make that connection necessarily when they're just playing it, um, because it's obviously the setting is different, the prison basement, and it's your kid instead of you know some other person's kids, and you're not a kid yourself. You're not on a big wheel. But uh, you know, we also had to adapt it to work in a game. So it's not cuts that, that make the, that hide the arrival of these different elements in the environments. It's like a screen flash that's superimposed on it. It's just there for a second, and then the things show up, and that light source shows up, and then another flash, and it's all hidden again at the end. We also did that slow motion effect to sort of prolong how long you're looking at it. So you've turned onto it, and it triggers the slow motion right when you're guaranteed to be looking at, at the boy, which we want you to be focused on during the scene. And so you can keep turning away. You're not pulled out of the sequence, but your ability to turn away is, is quite a bit lessened than it would be in the rest of the game where you can turn really fast because you're you know, turning to shoot things all the time. Um, so we're able to adapt that sort of shining technique uh, and put it into a game space in a way that I don't think people would necessarily make that connection, but you can see how it was a direct inspiration, but transformed through you know, moving it to a different media. So these were the, uh, the 10 techniques I went through here today. We had a total of 30 techniques and the different, uh, the, different, uh, you know, the different talks we did on this subject. Uh, and obviously, I think there's tons of more ways that, that movies, can really, uh, or movies can really inspire games, but in an interactive way, where there's an active adaptation and transforming uh, from one media to another. And if anyone's interested in the slides for this talk, uh, the slides for all three talks are up on my uh, website there. And uh, also, big thanks to uh, Marty Stoltz, who recently did these talks with me and came up with a lot of the film clips and did a lot of the film analysis uh, section of the talk. So with that, I think if there are any questions or things of that nature, do we need to use the microphone? Is anybody or you can fill Donahue the mic over to her. So first off, I really enjoyed this. Um, I was curious, you know, I noticed that you were by far, I know you work on first-person shooters, but you were by far using first-person shooters as examples. I mean, a side-scroller, I think there was. There was a couple of side-scrollers. Yeah. Action um, games by and large, and, though, yeah. And action games by and large. And on the one hand, I appreciate that one reason you're probably not talking about RPGs very much or casual games or any of that is that RPGs tend to be cinematic in that they have lots of cutscenes and it's harder to include some of these techniques in an RPG. Do you think that, though, the question of cinematic games is like more important for first-person shooters? Could you create a cinematic game that was an RPG that was not just cinematic because of, you know, uh, uh, cutscenes? Could you create a cinematic casual game? Um, would that be possible? Right. Or would or that is be? This, or is this solely a province of I hate to say it, but doodly games? <laughs> I mean, I think it. I think there's a certain amount of convergence, like with something like Oblivion or Fallout, that it's still a first-person perspective, and you're still, you know, immersion is still sort of a goal. I mean, a lot of these techniques are more. Some of the techniques are tied towards that sort of immersive type of gaming, where you're in the world, and what you're seeing is what you're seeing, and you're not seeing your guy removed. Though some of the techniques work. Um, you know, like with the side scrollers and that sort of thing too. Um, I think you know mostly I was looking at it this way because this is most of what I've worked on and thought about most. Um, so it was the most direct adaptation. Um, you know, RPGs tend to be a lot slower and they tend to focus less on that sort of moment-to-moment -moment polish. I would say, or like Western RPGs, like obviously sort of Japanese RPGs are highly polished, but in a more like let's look at the cutscene and then do you know turn-based advancing on each other, which doesn't feel which is sort of going for a different thing, I think, than like you would, they're not saying, hey, let's, when they say let's make it more cinematic, they mean we need longer cutscenes or something like that. 
Um, and that's fine for that type of genre. This is really the, the space where, you know, as Half-Life sort of innovated that idea of let's do away with the cutscene entirely and make it all in the game, you need to take these techniques that previously you'd just been using in your cutscenes and try to put them into the game space. Um, casual, I don't know what the cinematic version of Farmville is, you know. Uh, I can't, it like zooms in on the cow when you're getting the, the milk or something. Uh, that, that would be awesome in its own way. Exactly. Well, you know, that could be pretty cool when you first arrive at your friend's farm. It like pans around and shows you the whole thing. But usually you've only got a minute that day and you would just try to skip that because you just want to fertilize their stuff and leave. Um, anyway, so I think there's, there's certainly possibilities there. Again, it's like those games are made for a lot less money and as a result, not time to spend on fancy like slow-mo effects and stuff like that. So. Hi, um, my name is Peter Rausch. First, I'd like to thank you. Um, I wrote a paper on the suffering that ended up being adapted into an essay that I sent to an anthology called Gaming After Dark. Right. Oh, and awesome. And the wrote back to me and told me that space being limited, they were dividing it up by game. My piece, he really liked it, but it had been bumped for a piece you had written. <laughs> so I wanted to thank you for the most awesome rejection letter I've ever received. <laughs> I feel terrible now. <laughs> Being bumped by the creator of the game you're writing about is interesting. <laughs> um, that being said, I was wondering about um, the whole Hollywood envy thing and the idea that the Hollywood stuff is more legitimate and must the Hollywood is influencing games directly. We think of Hollywood as coming first, and therefore that would have to be the direction it goes. Right. Do you think on a at least somewhat theoretical level it would make sense to suggest that there are certain things in film that kind of hit the wa hit the walls inherent in that media form right that we were tr that we were trying to make video games before we had games right i'm not quite sure what you mean so like that the, well, it's gotten go as far like, as it can and I we still think, have room to go i think when we made night of the living dead we were trying to we were trying to make resident evil to some extent uh-huh and couldn't do it yet right right no that's a good point too that they i mean i think Hollywood is envious of us in different ways. We're like, we got the youth market all locked up, and you know they're not going to movies as much because Grand Theft Auto came out that weekend and whatever. <laughs> and there are isolated elements of that. Um, and I, you know, some people argue that that'll continue to happen, and Hollywood will go away, and games will dominate. And I'm not sure. I, I don't necessarily believe that. I think games are kind of a different experience, and sometimes you want the non-interactive thing, and sometimes you want the interactive thing, and. You know, what this generation does with its time will be interesting, but I think maybe as they get more tired, once they get jobs, they'll just want to sit in front of something non-interactive too and have that choice. And I also think that, you know, games as a medium have been around for centuries and millennia and have never taken over anything, really. They've always been this cool game thing over here, but well, for the meantime, we're going to listen to a storyteller around the campfire or something like that. So, yeah. But there are certainly movies you see where it's like, boy, this would be totally better as a game and... You know, like the Doom movie, for example. Uh, or, or other movies like that example, or other things where it's like, boy, if they, you know, they're just sort of limited by their lack of ability to actually let me pull the trigger, because that's really all they're trying to do. Um, oh, yeah? Which was that? Oh, right, right. Everyone emailed me and said, that's the suffering. They totally stole it. Unfortunately, that book was written before. The suffering. Now, the book's really good, too. But, uh, right. <laughs> Prison Island, it's just one of those ideas that resonates. Um, so, yeah, no, that movie looks really good, though.
just want to, you asked early on just uh, to, to throw out examples of the cutaways. The uh, parallel editing, the, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. the, the one with the Karetika reference. And uh, I don't think it happens in action sequences nearly as much, but it happens a lot in puzzle solving sequences. When you change one thing and something else happens somewhere else, right. you get these quick cutaways uh, that give you the information that you need. So and I is think it like a single, it's like that, you know, I flip the switch in this room and then I see the door open in another room somewhere. Right. Right. Which is a little different, like the parallel editing thing going back to like D.W. Griffith days is, you know, this back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and it gets faster and faster and faster and faster, which is the, which is kind of what happened in that Karataka sequence, yeah. uh, whereas the, like, that thing's a little bit different, but it's, it's, it is related. It's, it's closer to the Clarice pushing the, uh, uh, to the people pushing the doorbell. And right, the connection th of between the two elements and what you're doing and what you're not doing. I actually spent a lot of time in the suffering trying to eliminate all of those. So if you were flipping the switch, the door was like visible on screen. So, and Half-Life was really good at that too, where you're doing a puzzle that's all contained in the space you're looking at and doesn't involve things you can't see at the time. Yeah, so thanks, that was really interesting. Um, cool. With regards to the juxtaposed scenes, you asked for an example, uh, mm -hmm. Indigo Prophecy would be the one that right. pops out. Right. That has it in It does the parallel editing, also, yeah. I think they're actually trying to make that into a mechanic in some places where you could man you press a button and you switch between the two characters. Right. Maybe in different rooms, different areas. Um, that was actually one of the other subjects we did. I think I have actually slides of what our other subjects were. It was um, split screen, I think. We used an example from Indigo Prophecy on that, where you would see the cop on one side and you on the other side, and you knew the cop was coming towards the room, and you had to solve the, you know, yeah. the toilet paper Usually dispenser like puzzle before you left. In different areas. Right, yeah. That did a lot of cool stuff in it, definitely. Um, then also, uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the role of uh, quick time events in some of these cases. Because that uh, occupies a different space totally. where it's during the you know typically non-interactive sequences, but it also provides the opportunity for a lot more complex uh, of these cinematic techniques, like the, the examples you gave. Some of these, it's difficult to be uh, to do that within the normal action mechanics very well. Um, I mean, the example uh, from the John Woo game, um, I think, you know. That could have been done, or I, I'm sure it has been done as a quick time event in many games. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But um, that's an example of using it. Do quick time events, should quick time be events be replaced by stuff like that? Uh, what do you see the role? I think so. I'm a, I'm a hater on quick time events, I'll confess <laughs> right up front. Though I do think there's two different levels of quality that are distinct. There's like the Silent Hill, I mean, uh, Resident Evil 4 style, where you're watching what's basically a cutscene. And then at some point they say, hit A to like stab him. And if you don't, you die. And that's basically, you know, Dragon's Lair, Space Ace mechanic where you're watching something where you can do absolutely nothing and then you have to press something at a random time that you can't predict. And I've heard the guy who sits next to me at work actually complains about this when he was playing the most recent Resident Evil 5 that I just want to watch the movie. I don't want to sit there like this the whole time. You know, if it's a movie, which it basically is because I can't do any meaningful interaction with the world, just let me watch it. Um, and that's his opinion. Uh, so those are sort of the lamest to me. Like the God of War style ones where, you know, I go up to the big, you know, serpent or whatever it is and like grab his neck with some button and then I go into the sequence, I like trigger the quick time sequence myself and then I do this series of, you know, X then O then A to like stab him in the eye and then rip his ear off and whatever I'm doing. Um, 
Those, it's like I'm initiating it and I know I'm in that mode and it's like a quick series of, it's almost like beat matching or something, you know, where you're doing a quick series of a number of things. You pull this, you kind of know it's there and it's brief and you feel like, oh, I'm doing this cool little thing uh, with this, you know, elaborate animation that would never have worked if it was fully interactive and so you get this cool moment in the game. So those are, you know, I understand why those are cool. I, I don't really get the ones that happen in the middle of a, what's otherwise completely non-interactive and introduce interaction that isn't really meaningful. It's do this or fail. So that's my personal take on it. And I like the, you know, I think both the, uh, the, um, the Call of Duty example and the, and the you know, Stranglehold example where you see, you know, I have my mechanics, not my full set of mechanics, but some subset of them I'm building on skills I have, but applying them in a new space, you know, is more, you know, and there's more analog, like I can shoot the guys in any order and I can aim at his head or at his body or I can, you know, there's a lot more player choice going on there. So you've described a lot of individual tactics that get used in game design for developing scenes, and particular emotions, and particular emotions and moods in sort of small environments. How do you fit those into larger narrative, dramatic, cinematic games as a whole, where you're looking more at right, something like a Hollywood beat structure mm -hmm. rather than an individual moment within a game? Right. I mean, it's. Um yeah, a lot of this was at that very specific micro-mechanic level. I mean, obviously there's, you know, lots of debates of, you know, should games follow the hero's journey or not? Or, you know, is that still a form that applies here? And should it be three acts? Or are we, like, is each level its own act? Or, you know, how do you, do you structure it around how long someone's going to play the game for that night? More like a TV episode. And then it's like each thing's, so there's like lots of different theories about how that is. I know I'm personally not a, uh, I tend to not use that the, that sort of act structure at all. I think that the best game stories are exceedingly simple, and you know, like the Bioshock, you know, is an example. Like the plot is, I'm trapped in some base. I wonder how I survive, you know. And then, oh, there's some guy who betrayed me, and then I kill him, and there's some other guy, and I kill him. And there's not like a lot. The plot itself is extremely shallow. And there's this awesome world, though, of like all this stuff that happened before you got there and the audio logs you're finding the whole time and these different characters who are talking to you. And it's not like those characters particularly have arcs or you know, are tied to the beat structure necessarily. Um, but it's, you know, it keeps you going. And the plot is enough to keep you going while you're really enjoying the environment and the characters while you play, even if they're not in that structure. So like the suffering is sort of the same thing, where it's like escape from the prison island is your goal. And there's various sort of sub-goals along the way. And then you're learning about your past and your relationship to your wife. And then you're learning about the island's past and things that happened there in the past. But it's not really happening on any sort of beat structure. And obviously, there are other games that do use, you know, do use that sort of traditional Hollywood structure and, and work out as well. Um, they're just not the ones I'm as, I tend to make or be as interested in. Um, and I think players tend to like, when you get the overly compl complex plots, tend to lose track of it and not really care very much. So it's you know, emphasizing that sort of environment and cool characters on a moment to moment basis is sort of more engaging. There's a microphone right there. Oh, yeah. Right, right. Do you think that that's just a nice little extra feature? Or 
No, I think that, that can work there. I haven't, I you know, must confess, I only played an hour of System Shock 2 when it came out for whatever embarrassing reason I had at the time. Um, but, you know, there's no reason you couldn't have had arcs in those audio dialogue, the diaries in Bioshock. It just wasn't, I don't know that that's the key thing people are going to pick up on, you know, when they're playing there. It's not like when you're watching a movie, it's more you're seeing these people for a short amount of time and you're really watching them move through the space and how they evolve over time. Whereas in games, it's so much about the moment-to-moment -moment experience and surviving and doing your own challenges that also trying to track this elaborate plot with all these character arcs is really beyond most people's ability. <laughs> Though, you know, it's great for the people who get into it and replay it a bunch of times and figure out all this stuff. Games that have those sort of thinking about games that have those larger developmental arcs, what comes to mind is something like Starcon 2. Mm -hmm. You have individual experiences kind of around these environments, and then they get sewn up into a whole through the player experience. But then thinking about devices in game design that are used to sort of fracture and create chapters, um, you've got it in the example from Modern Warfare checkpoints, checkpoints and saves. Right. And how do you use those to, I want to say, pattern the user experience to create something that's more serialized or cinematic or episodic? It's interesting with those checkpoints, like I've heard this from in focus tests, where people say when they see the checkpoint come up, they're conditioned to know, oh, crap, I'm about to get shot. Or like, I've just I've cleared something, and now I'm going to have to fight something else that's harder or a little different in some way. So the conditioning is more at the level of, I'm moving on to another challenge when those things show up. And that's the, the conditioning level that they're thinking of them at. And then it's uh, as opposed to like narrative beats or something like that. I don't know if that, that was sort of a tangent from your question. I'm not sure that answers it. But it's sort of interesting how you know, players learn to read those signals that we put in as just a functional thing as keying them off to what the gameplay is going to be. That actually brings up the. Um RPG thing to me again because on more than first-person shooters or you know RPGs tend to especially the sandbox ones like Oblivion and so on when they when that you have like quests that are uh, particularly scaffolding you into here is this you know little bubble of plot that you're going right. to go through and you can do these in in multiple orders usually unless it's the main quest some of them um, are optional and some of them are optional and so on and that's interesting to me because when you're talking about episodic that seems like a very natural um i guess it's not natural to do it but it seems that way sometimes um, because it, it provides you with this little plot bubble that is easily digestible and can happen and can and kind of happen on its own independent of the rest right. of the thing um, and I think there is a bigger question then of how you can scaffold those together, and you know, could you do it without any um, any other narrative? You know, could you create a game that was all these disparate pieces and yet have it still fully make sense? I don't know, but yeah, I mean, there's off topic from there's a lot of debate <laughs> in in RPG designers of like, can we get rid of the main quest? Like, they want to get rid of the main quest. They want you just to explore the. You know, like uh, Ken Ralston's of the world want you to just explore the, the individual story atoms and put them together in whatever order you want and get bits and pieces of the story or not based on what you feel like. It's also a big thing that comes up in terms of like the monetization of it that, you know, in, in downloadable content for a game, you're like, I want this extra chapter that's sort of like the deleted scenes off a DVD or something where I get a little more information about these characters and it's fun, but it doesn't really change the plot necessarily, but it's this extra little little nugget you get. That you can. Well, yeah. If we can get someone else to build it, that's great. Or are trying to find a way to 
yeah. That's right, right. And that was the you know the mud model all along, right? Was hey, the players are just building more stuff. It's great. Um, I have a question. I am. This is maybe a basic question, but uh, I'm not actually a game designer. But uh, I was very interesting to see all of the sort of parallels between uh, sort of tropes in cinema and in games. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why we might want to make games cinematic. If that's you know a good in and of itself, or if like in what in what context is that good? Is it bad sometimes? Um, right. Just your thoughts about that. You know, I think it's good to. Um, in other talks I've given, say, a few hours ago, uh, <laughs> to a game design class, uh, talked about like, you know, where you're pulling your inspirations from. And often game developers fall into this trap of always pulling inspiration from other games all the time. And like, I just played this. We got to put this thing in the game, or this feature, or this bit of fiction, or whatever. And so pulling something from a movie, at least, is like one media level removed. So you're like evolving it in some way. I'm not saying that's the best way. It'd be better, like, I had this cool life experience. Maybe we could work this into the game in some way. Like, that's totally great, too. Um, it's good to, you know, it's good to also pull from, like, dance or from, you know, theater or a novel or any, any other source that you're getting stuff from to sort of bring more to the medium is good um, to some extent. So, but I don't necessarily think it's, you know, it's funny that I did these talks and stuff that I was sort of a guy who complained about people calling things cinematic all the time. And it was because I knew, um, because I knew Marty, and he was good at talking about film clips, and like, hey, we could do this GDC talk together, and then people liked it and wanted another one and stuff. So it was funny that we got into this series about this, but you know, I'm a movie fan too, and it made sense you know, for us to talk about this, but I don't think it's like, would Civilization be better if it was more cinematic? You know, no, probably not. You know, would Farmville be better? Well, maybe little flourishes, but not, probably you'd just want to skip it pretty quickly. It seems to me that sort of that like cinema has this has this position as in relation to like moving pictures that the that like anything that um, involves moving images is like getting sort of eaten up into cinema or something like that. Right. You have like interactive movies, and the more we can make a video game more like an interactive movie, then the more it becomes like this sort of ideal moving image kind of medium. Right. Well, and just that it's this higher plane of existence because movies are the driving cultural force as opposed to as opposed to games, which are still, you know, off in their ghetto somewhere. I actually have a question that's a bit of a follow-up. Uh -huh. um, is there anything that, you were talking about inspiration, is there anything that you've wanted to do or, or that you wanted to uh, include in a game that technology, for instance, doesn't allow you? I mean, um, I'm just wondering, it's like, because all these things, uh, they're also technological problems, like how you move the camera, of course, it's a lot easier to just put the character in the middle right. and just move around it. This is all technological issues. So uh, do you think that there, as technology gets better, there will be things that, that you can do? There are things that you're dying to do that you cannot yet? So what's ironic is that as the technology gets better, we're actually able to do less. So let me explain how that works. So like in Suffering 1, we had like light switches you could turn on and off everywhere. Uh, and then it was decided like our lighting wasn't pretty enough in some way, and the artists wanted to make it better. So they wanted to pre-bake all the lighting in the game so that it would look better all the time, but it was less interactive. So then we couldn't turn lights on and off anymore in the second game, which I thought was a loss of like, well, I run into the room and I look for the light switch and turn it on so that I feel safe, and now I have had an interaction with the game I wouldn't have had otherwise. It's the same thing with like Gears of War. Um, you know, was in the Unreal Engine 3, which is more advanced than Unreal Engine 2, 
But in Unreal Engine 2, you could have you know, like way more characters running at once than you can have. Like Gears of War, it's like five guys running at once, and then you're starting to get into trouble. Maybe 10 guys, but not 30 guys. Oh my god. Um, and so like, or like Doom 1, for example. And there they had light going off all over the place, on and off, and like rooms filled with 100 enemies you had to kill. You can't do that anymore at all. So yes, <laughs> I often feel limited. And sort of the graphics arms race is actually like, forced like less and less. Uh, I mean, there's also games that go the other direction, like Grand Theft Auto, where it says, well, we're going to make everything look a lot worse. And if you look at any one art asset in this world, it looks worse than the same thing in Gears of War, for sure. But there's so much of it, the player sort of forgives that. Um, and I think some games have figured out they can do that. But a lot of publishers are like, I want every screenshot to be perfect. And let's just have four enemies at once instead of 10 and stuff. So. Like certainly in the first suffering, I would have loved to have like 10 guys who are coming after you all at once, but we could only have five. So there's certainly, yeah, like constantly. Um, piggybacking on that one a bit, is there anything in terms of, um, in terms of narrative or idea that you've had trouble, get, that you've had trouble working into a game for non-technical reasons, particularly referring to Something I, I heard someone mention from a talk, I think from a talk you given at GDC about the suffering and how you felt you couldn't actually tell. The, su the suffering kind of draws a straight line from the modern American prison system back through mental hospitals and the military, eventually, eventually to the slave trade. Mm -hmm. and I think before that, possibly witch burnings. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and I read that you said something, um, said something to the effect this was not a story you could have told directly. You had to bury it, you had to bury it in this, oh, this is about a haunted prison. Right, right. As opposed right, right. to, well, this is discipline and punish in, um, in video game form. Right. Um, There's definitely been other times, and as I look back on the horror genre, um, you know, it's ideal for that sort of hiding your sort of subversive message thing. And like Rod Serling did that with the Twilight Zone. And, you know, Candyman is a good example of that, about sort of race relations, but hidden in this horror movie. Um, and it's certainly, there have been other instances arguing with, you know, executives about, like, content and, like, can we have this character die here? No, that'll be too sad. No one who wants to be sad, you know, want to have fun. Well, what are you talking about sad? You know, and that, it's, I'm simplifying it quite a bit. But do have those, like, well, we can't have a force fail for the player here because they don't want to be depressed. And, I, and then you look at something like Call of Duty that has you, you know, get killed by a nuke in the middle of it and sells a billion copies. And like, is that's a force fail? What are you talking about? But there's a lot of that back and forth in content. And the suffering was relatively free of that because you know, horror, it's supposed to be depressing. Everyone said, oh, I get why you're supposed to be sad. It's a horror game. OK. So you know, that got us a free pass, whereas other genres, it can be a lot more problematic. Uh, building on that, um, video games have been very successful at eliciting the horror genre at, at eliciting scares from the player. Um, you mentioned that that gamers might be too sad if a player if, if a character dies. Right. Do you can you cite any examples of games that have been particularly successful at the love genre or maybe maybe eliciting sadness or something like that? And maybe whether this topic relates to that. Right. I think the way games have been most successful at sort of eliciting other emotions is sort of out of the sort of action narrative game sort of space and more like in The Sims or something where. You know, your sim catches on fire at some point, and he's dead. Oh, shit. You know, and like, do I go back? Do I just turn off the computer before it saves this, or what do I do? You know, or like uh, Nintendogs has this cool mechanic where um, your dog will run away if you neglect it for too long. 
And then you're like, what happened to my dog? And if you're you know, like, I've been spending a lot of time with this dog and it's just gone, you don't know if it's coming back. And then it comes back and you're all happy and stuff like that. So getting that sort of, that happy mixed with sad has happened in some of those spaces more. Um, it's definitely hard, you know, there's, and there's like the Floyd example from, from uh, Planet Fall of, you know, that character sacrificed itself and that was sad and people seem to like that. And, um, you know, like even the little sisters in Bioshock, you know, had that, you're so close to them and they're really cute. And, you know, getting you up close to them when you make that decision to harvest them for their energy like makes you feel more sad about that choice than you would have otherwise until the you know fiftieth time you've done it when you've forgotten that they're little girls at all. But uh, so there's been you know mixed mixed success, but I think it's you know some of the other genres have had better luck at sort of plumbing those depths. Not successful, yeah. I haven't played it all the way through, so I feel bad saying that, but, right. I think they really tried. <laughs> yeah, I can't think of a good, you know, there was a good uh, game designers challenge thing. It's this thing they did at GDC where one of the first ones was the love story and it's like Warren Spector wrote an essay about how hard it would be to do a love story so he didn't have a solution and then Somebody else had one, I can't remember, and then Will Wrights was the winner and he had this like, so these players are playing Battlefield and then you're two other players thrown into their game who have to try to reconnect in the middle of the map and then you get stronger when you're together. And I would say like Ico is kind of a love story, you know? It's like a different type, it's not like a romantic love, it's like a sister-brother type of love or something, but I felt, you know, when she isn't dead at the end, oh, I'm sorry, I ruined it. Uh, you know, you're, that's like, oh my God, she's not dead, that's so great, and it's like, a rare that you would get that connection at that level in other media too, so. I have to say that I think that that's kind of funny because I feel like video games evoke the buddy emotions very well and I don't <laughs> know why they can't do love stories that way and I think it's primarily because they don't actually approach love stories as being something that's based on like there being an actual like person in the love object, right? right. Like wh wh wherever you are, like whatever the you know situation is, it seems like they're almost never approaching it the way they would a buddy story. There's no person behind the love object, and it's not like I mean, and that's not always true. Like I'm not trying to say that all video games do this, but like by and large, when I run across one, it's very much like here is this hot chick who is over here, and she's right. so hot, and you're going to like sex her up, and then at the end, you might have to save her. Oh look, you saved her. That's so good. You know, I mean, like it's it's. It's it's certainly a reward that you get the hot chick at the end, and I think that's great, but like it's not a love story because there's not the same love put into it as like, you know, your your Sar you know, Sarge or whoever who you've been following through this game and you know right. you feel attached to for that reason. That was just, I don't know, a random thought because I, I guess I don't see how the, the love part is different than any other sort of attachment to an NPC. Right. And I guess it's like who you fall in love with is very personal to you. And you know the play, like when you watch a movie and you see a love story, you can believe that Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman fall in love, even though you might not love either of them because they're not your type or whatever. But you can empathize with their love relationship as opposed to having a I'm in love with this. Who, what, what, who's to say what the player is going to be in love with? So that's a little problematic. We, yeah, or like I, maybe. Um, though there's certainly like some people who just always found Floyd annoying and never got over it. Um, 
But then there was an interesting idea we had for a project was that like you get to create your avatar at the beginning of the game, say it's some game where you got to do that, and then you create your mate at the same time, and they're like hidden in the world somewhere, and you find them after 20 hours of playing, and like, oh, here's my mate, and I built her that way, and I'd forgotten about it by now, but boy, she looks great now, and you know, that way you're sort of creating your ideal for yourself, and it might be someone you'd fall in love with. Of course, all the dialogue's still gonna be pre-written and canned, so the whole personality thing is you know, kind of important to the love thing too. So how we solve that, I don't know. They, they all talk in Simlish, so maybe that would fix it. Am I allowed to bring up Japanese dating sims? Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. Sure, <laughs> if you're the expert in the room. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's like, at least for that market, it, there are extremely effective love stories. I mean, you do get to make those choices of who you want to pursue. Because they have a lot of people to pick from. Exactly, you know, right. and, and you also have the, uh, they, they also take out all of the choices that have nothing to do with a love story. Like, nav like uh, there are some games where you don't even get to control navigation. Mm -hmm. you, you know, it's just plot point to plot point and plot point the decisions that you do get to make are the things that affect the love story. Uh, and, and those do seem to, at, at least for fans, that those do seem to work. Uh, so usually it's puppy love, it's, but, you know, but that's what they choose to go for. Yeah, I, I have to admit that I was talking mostly about Western video games. <laughs> issue with a lot of the RPGs is that the buddy is very easy, you know, it's whoever you're working with, and the games always prescribe that here is the person you're going to fall in love with, or in a couple of games like Mass Effect, it's whichever one of these you talk to more over the course of the game is the one you're in love with. But it doesn't build up the connection the way a game like uh, Eco does. Or there's no interdependence between the characters, and the actual experience of the game is not falling in love with them, it's just telling you at key points, your character is now more in love with this other character. <laughs> so, I mean, you could relate to, you know, the, the characters and the dialogue could be very emotional, but right. you're not experiencing it as a player. This, they had all those different chicks you could pick from in Grand Theft Auto 4 too, right? Wasn't there? <laughs> I mean, I don't know that. <laughs> all that bowling, you know. <laughs> Have you foreseen uh, any new applications of all the cinematic uh, experiencing games with the new technology coming up, like with Natal and what PlayStation is doing? Anything new that you could see that could be applied to future games that's not possible now? Right, not like, um, you know, there's certain like uh, rendering limitations and things like that, like the House of Mirrors scene you couldn't do or something like that. I think like the control thing is sort of separate for me of like, that's the more game side of the experience and that's more like improving your ability to control the thing the way you want to as opposed to improving like the more, you know, cinematic crafted side of it sort of evolves independently of that, I think. But that might just be my own lack of vision. So we talked about incorporating uh, that cinematic experience into the mechanics of the game. Maybe any 
any new uh, gameplay control that you can get and, and that would allow you to incorporate something that right now you, you can't do? No. <laughs> I don't have anything off the top no? of my right. tip of my <laughs> tongue, unfortunately. Not so much a question, but as I was watching, I, I really like those comparisons, the, the movies to scenes and then kind of showing the same examples. So it made me think of a few that I just thought I mentioned. And uh, in uh, another Clint Eastwood movie, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and uh, not to ruin the end of the movie for everyone, but there's You've a really been doing that for hours. sort of, yeah, if, if you haven't <laughs> seen it already, it's probably too late. Uh, <laughs> it's like Ruling Lord of the Rings or something, right? Uh, so there's a really classic scene at the end where the whole movie really builds up to, uh, to the end because there's the three characters and you're wondering, you know, who who is against who? And it right. goes through this, the whole slow-mo thing. It's not just who's going to shoot first, but you really don't know because you really don't know whose side of the, even throughout the whole movie, you still don't know at the end whose side is, is who on. Right. And uh, they kind of pan around and everything for a while and you're kind of left wondering. Building, you know, building, building. kind of the conclusion you, you probably think is going to happen, but with a slight twist. Um, and then The the Shining, uh, another good example of something I think, <coughs> trying to remember, I think it'd fall into your altered reality category, is one of my f absolute favorite scenes is the bar scene. And I'm actually not really a, a huge fan of horror movies, but or suspense movies, but it, it, was, it was just really great because it's taken out of context. Mm -hmm. You would think that that wasn't, he wasn't dreaming. He wasn't hallucinating. There was it's something just a normal was, conversation with a bartender. It was a perfectly right. normal conversation, which made it so creepy that he was having a perfectly normal conversation about this Total pigment, uh, you know, pigmented character that telling him what he was gonna do. He's like, yeah, I, I should do that. Yeah, <laughs> and he was just like at the bar hanging out, and uh, it was actually at the bar, but it was just the, the character itself, just that one person was what he, what was different, what he wasn't like, kind of like the Peter Sellers thing, where he was just changing one thing in his mind to something else, but it wasn't even something unrealistic. It was something totally realistic, actually. Right, right. And so and it was just that you knew that that guy couldn't be but there. You knew that the guy right. really wasn't there, probably. <laughs> right. <laughs> because it was supposed to be empty. <laughs> Well, he's the devil, right? Isn't that what the, the supposed analysis of that movie is? That, but that's a totally sort of the unreliable narrator who is like guiding you in the game or something. You know, they kind of pulled that off in Bioshock a little bit. Where, but it's a different thing. I, it's a totally good example, though. I could see that being pulled off in a game. Well, let's give Richard a round of applause. Thank you.